If you would, join me by opening your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We are beginning in verse 3 this morning, and we're going to be reading 3 through 11. And I hope this doesn't disappoint you too much, but we're going to be pretty much sticking in verse 3 <laughs> today. I intended to move on uh, through 11, but I just couldn't get past 3 this morning. So this is where the Lord has us. And apparently, based off the music and the announcements today, it seems very appropriate. So God is at work. While you're turning there, I'll tell you a little bit about our home. If you were to get a peek inside of our home, you would see uh, Ashley and I taking on various roles within the house. Right? We all have our roles to play. Right? You can, you can witness the role of breadwinner and bread maker. Right? You can see the, the role of lawn guy and trash duty person. You can see the role of food prep teaching our children, discipling our children. And of course, within all these roles, you can see a lot of overlap. There's things that, that daddy does, that mom usually does. There's things that mommy does, that daddy usually does. But there's overlap. But there's roles to play. But there's one role in particular where there's, there's a lot less overlap that Ashley kind of takes the full weight of. And that is the role of nurturer. The role of nurture. She is the primary nurturer in our family. She's the primary source of comfort in our family. And you might say, well, man, how do you know this? Just look at our kids. Just look at our kids. Our kids love when dad gets home. They love when I come home, but they hate when mom leaves. Like a warm blanket is leaving the house as if their comfort is leaving the home. Daddy leaves all the time. No tears. Mommy leaves for 20 minutes to go to the grocery store. It's, it's like trying to comfort them by myself. It seems like an impossible task. Even I'm crying, but don't go. go. Right? Ashley leaves, tears. Matt leaves, no tears. You might say, well, Matt, that's just one scenario. I got more. I got, I got a lot of more. All right? Tucking the kids in at night. Tucking the kids in at night. Dad, it's good if daddy's there. We want daddy to be there. But if mommy's not there, unconsolable. Unconsolable. We call Ashley in our home, home base. She's their home base. Their source of comfort, a place of comfort. The clearest picture of this is when one of our kids gets hurt. Somebody skins a knee, falls down, gets their feelings hurt. And if daddy and mommy are both home, daddy hugs just won't do. They will run right past me to mommy. I will be right here, and they'll just go right past me, right to mommy. Why? Because only her hugs bring comfort in that moment. There's no hugs like mom's hugs. There's no kisses like mom's kisses. They bring the biggest size of relief. She's home base. She's comforter. Now, here's the fun part to watch. Because Peyton is the oldest in our family, she's experienced the most hurt. And because she's also the oldest, she's experienced the most mommy hugs. So when she sees one of her brothers and sisters get hurt, what does she do? She says, go get a hug from mommy. She points them to mommy. Go get a kiss from mommy. Go get a hug from mommy. She drags them to mommy. Because she knows she's tasted and seen the hugs of mom, the comfort of mom. And so she draws them to mom. So she's the comforter in our home. 
And that's how this whole thing works. And this is exactly how Paul is going to start this letter in the church of Corinth. He's going to point them. He's going to point us this morning to the source of true comfort. Let's pray. Let's pray this morning that God would reveal to us, not just in our heads, but in our heart, where a real change takes place, where true comfort's found. Father, you are good, gracious, merciful, kind, abounding in steadfast love. Oh, how you love us, oh God, even though we don't deserve it. I pray, Lord, this morning that you would be glorified, that Christ would be exalted, that your name and your character and who you are would be worshipped by your people this morning. Give us hearts of worship as we hear your word read. Give us hearts of desperation for you, O God. As we sung this morning, let us look upon the face of Christ this morning and see the beauty of Christ, the mercy of Christ, and let all other false comforts fade away. Only you can do this, Lord. So we come to you needy, dependent, hopeful in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we're going to read uh, verse 3 through 11 just for the whole picture, and then kind of zero in on verse 3 this morning, okay? So if you'll just open with me, and if there is a handout in the back, uh, I believe it's the one on the left. It's the one that does not say GT and the Halo Express at the top. Okay, Uh, so feel free to get up and get one if you haven't got one yet. I think there's still more back there. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer, and our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are partners in our suffering, so also you are partners in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction which occurred in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who rescued us from so great a danger of death, and will rescue us, he on whom we have set our hope. And he will yet deliver us. If you also join in helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons in our behalf for the favor granted to us through the prayers of many. This is God's word to us this morning. Word that he wants us to hear, 
May he give us ears to hear it. Now, if you remember from last week, kind of the, the story we told about the relationship between Paul and the church in Corinth. It was a, it's been a bit of a roller coaster up until this point before he wrote this letter. A lot of ups and downs, a lot of, a lot of wins, seems like more losses, but right now we find ourselves with a church that is repentant. A church that has repented of breaking fellowship with Paul, denying Paul as an apostle, denying Paul as a friend, and denying him, therefore, his gospel. But they're repentant. And so Paul pens 2 Corinthians in response to this letter. And if we remember, it's a letter from the heart of Paul. This is a heartfelt letter from Paul to this church and as we saw last week, Paul began this letter by talking about who he is and who he's, whose he is and who they are and whose they are, affirming them in their repentance, affirming them in their salvation. And then he begins to draw them into what I believe is a beautiful praise of God who grants these things called repentance. He draws them into this praise to God. Blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Our main point today is this, is that true comfort, true comfort is found in the mercy of God revealed in Jesus Christ. True comfort is found in the mercy of God Understanding the mercy of God, being in awe of the worship of God, resting in the worship and the mercy of God revealed to us through Jesus Christ. This word blessed or blessed, it's a, it is a praising word. It's not an emotionless word. It is filled with emotion. It, is, it means Praiseworthy is God. Worthy of praise. He's, he's starting off this letter with heartfelt worship of this God whom he has come to know and love. And he wants to draw them into this. This is, this is heartfelt exaltation. He has beheld the worth of God, the value of God. He's not just some distant God off in, the, in, in heaven, spinning the world into existence and uninvolved. He is an intimate God. He's an involved God. And he's a God who desires to be known. And Paul has seen him. He knows him. And he wants to exalt in him. And he wants to draw this church into a heartfelt exaltation of this God. We should, not see, we should not see this phrase. We do see it often in Scripture, blessed be God, and just breeze over it as if this is some sort of common greeting that they give one another. It's not. It's not like, hey, what's up? Not much. It's not like that. It's heartfelt. It's praise. Again, Paul is not aiming to just write a letter of principles for them to follow. No, he wants, he wants them, he wants us to have hearts that are moved to worship, to marvel, to exalt this God. This is why Paul starts off this way. 
We need hearts. We need hearts that are able to see and understand and feel, not just know in our heads. Feel in our hearts. Like I said, this is not an emotionless relationship between us and God. It is filled with emotion, rooted in truth, rooted in the truth of who God is. This is not a stoic relationship between us and God. This is not a transactional relationship. This is not a, you teach me about you, I know about you, and I can be puffed up in my knowledge. This is an emotional, heartfelt relationship with God that should result in a bubbling of praise and worship. That's what we should hear when we see, blessed be God. Blessed be God. He's worthy of praise, exaltation, and marveling. And he wants us to join him in this praise, worship, marveling in God. This is the heart of Paul. This is his heart that he's expressing right off the bat. His heart for God. But not just what God has done, but namely who God is. His character. His heart. He loves the heart of God. And who is this God that is worthy of praise? He is not the God of Muhammad. He is not the God of Buddha. He's not the God of this world. He is not one of the Hindu gods. He's not one of the Greek gods. He's not one of the Roman gods, but he is the one true God. It is this God, the one and true eternal creator God, who has revealed who he is in Jesus Christ. You want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. You want to know the heart of God? Look at Jesus. You want to know the way God thinks? Look at Jesus. You want to know the way God feels about people, about things, about culture? Look at Jesus. He has revealed to us who he is. It is Jesus who is the image of God. He's the image of the invisible God. It is Jesus that is the exact imprint of the nature of God. Jesus is not God-like. He is not God-ish. He's the exact representation of the one true God. Remember in John 14, it was read earlier today, Philip asked Jesus to show us the Father. To show us the Father, Jesus. Jesus says, imagine talking to Jesus saying, show us the Father, and this is Jesus' response. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? How can you say that? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? When Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is telling us who the true God is. The one true God. But then we have this parallel. It seems like there's like this parallelism. It says, blessed be God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ, and then we hear Father God. God, Father of Jesus, then we have Father God again. Okay? So listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
And then the father of mercies, God of comfort. And so it is Jesus who shows us who God is, and it's because of Jesus primarily. It is because of the gospel primarily that Paul can call God the father of mercies, the God of comfort. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of Christ, the God of Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of mercies. We understand the mercy of God and the comfort of God through Jesus Christ, primarily. So stick with this for a minute. God is the Father of mercies, the source of mercy. Not getting what you deserve. Jesus, Jesus is God's embodied mercy. He is God's embodied mercy, and it is through Jesus that we see it is the nature of God. It is that it is his natural bent to be merciful. When he sees you especially as his children, his natural bent is to show mercy. It doesn't feel like that sometimes, though, does it? We need, we need a new perspective on the way God works. His natural bent is to be merciful. When you think of God and you think of, okay, I'm thinking of God, I'm thinking of his character, I'm thinking of his nature, I'm praying, and I'm trying to understand who I'm praying to. What is the first character trait that comes to mind? Who comes to mind? Is it the authority of God? The rule of God, his kingship, his law, his wrath, his judgment, all of which are true. Now, I don't want to detract from any of God's character to overemphasize or overhighlight another character trait, yet Paul Talking to believers here, he wants to put on display the character of God and he wants to highlight the fact that God loves to be merciful. Think about that for a minute. This is what he enjoys doing the most. He loves to be merciful. I don't know of any passages in Scripture that call God the Father of wrath, the Father of justice. He is called the Father of mercy. And Jesus showed us that, didn't he? Jesus revealed that over and over again throughout the Gospels. Over and over again, we heard people coming to him saying, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. And we had parables talking about uh, Pharisees and tax collectors and the one who was left righteous is the one pleading for the mercy of God. And Jesus would show mercy the blind beggar said, Son of David, have mercy on me. And there's a crowd of people around. They're all, they're all begging him for all kinds of things. But the one who says, Son of David, have mercy on me, finds him. He goes to him. He's eager to show mercy. He put the mercy of God on full display in his life, but primarily in the gospel. Primarily in the gospel. He 
eternal Son of God, coexistent with the Father, co-planner with the Father, saw our helpless state before a holy God, and he left heaven. He left heaven. He put on flesh, and he lived a perfect life. And he lived this life of righteousness that we could not live, and he went to the cross to die the death that we deserved sacrificially, and he rose victoriously, all of which was for our sake to demonstrate the mercy of God. This was the plan from the beginning. The, the plan from the very beginning was to put on display the riches and the glory of the grace and mercy of God. And he did it in Christ through the gospel. It is in the person of Christ. It is in his character. It is in the nature of Jesus. And in his great gospel that we see that God is the Father of mercy. He's so rich in mercy. He just outpours mercy, mercy, mercy. He's the source of mercy, and Jesus is the embodiment of it. We get to see it with our own eyes in the person of Christ. And it is in his mercy when we reflect upon the mercy and character and nature of God, it is in that where we find comfort. True, nurturing comfort in his mercy. This is what I want us to see this morning. It is in the person of Christ, in the gospel of Christ, that we who have been redeemed find comfort. He is our home base. Christ is our home base, our refuge in the storm, our strong tower, the place where we find comfort and rest and ease. A big sigh of relief is found in the arms of Christ. Do you feel like you need mercy? Do you struggle? Do you need mercy? Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. His low disposition, he comes to you at your level. He gets on his knees with you like a mother and a child. He gives you a hug of mercy for those who would seek that mercy from God. He's found, that mercy is found in Jesus. This is how he relates to his children, eager to show mercy. And so for, before we could even, maybe you can see my struggle. Before we could even move on to the rest of the passage, I, I, had, I had to get us to understand what God means by comfort because he says it like nine times in this passage. What does he mean when he says comfort? It's an important word. He uses it nine times in these first seven verses and then he uses it three more times later in chapter seven. But if we get this word wrong, definitions are so important. If we get this word wrong, we're going to redefine this word in our own way. And I want us to get God's definition of comfort before we move on to understand what it means to comfort others or to feel comfort in affliction. The word for comfort is perikalesis. It comes from the root word periclete. It, it means to come alongside to help, 
in time of need. Think of, think of a friend who has come and sat with you and just put his arm around you and said, I get it. I come alongside you. I help you. I encourage you. I exhort you. That's what the word means. In fact, it is the same word that Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit. In John 14, again, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as a helper. The word parakletos, same, same word, parakletos. It means helper or comforter. So our subpoint underneath this morning is the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is the agent by which we receive true comfort. It is through the Holy Spirit that we come to understand what true comfort is. John 14, 16 says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. There's the word, a parakletos. And he, that he may be with you forever. He doesn't leave you. He doesn't leave you. This helper that God gives you, this Holy Spirit, his spirit, he will come into you and he will never, ever leave you. This is how later in 1 Corinthians 15, he said God will be all in all. The world will be filled with spirit-filled people. And, he, and, this, and Christ will rule. So God will be all in all. He will never leave us he calls him the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So how does the spirit help us, though? Like, it's awesome. He, he sends the spirit. He comes in. He says, you're going to help me. Okay, how? I want to know how. I want to tap in to understand how the spirit helps me. Verse 26, in the same chapter of John 14, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. So the Spirit reveals the Scriptures to us. He teaches us through the Scriptures and he reminds us of the Word of God. He points us to the Word of God. He reminds us of the Word of God. It is the sword of the Spirit, after all. And then in the next chapter, John 15, 26, he says it kind of in a different way. And I like this, this one as well. It says, when the helper comes, I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me. That's what the Spirit does. He reveals Christ to you. You want to know if the Spirit's working in your life? Do you see Christ more? Do you see the glory of God in the face of Christ more and more and more? That's the work of the Spirit in your life. And so the main way that God helps us in our time of need is by the Spirit who is testifying. Testifying means to give testimony of something you know. Who knows the mind of God other than God, God's Spirit? Who knows Christ better than the Spirit of Christ? And so the Spirit is testifying, bringing testimony to our hearts of who Christ is. That's how he helps us. That's how he comforts us, by proclaiming who God is in Christ. He's continuously comforting us 
Over and over again, affliction after affliction, trial after trial, he is illuminating the gospel to us. And that is to be the source of our comfort no matter what situation we are in. The gospel is. Does the gospel lost its luster to you? I hope not. Does suffering tend to remove the impact of the gospel to encourage you and comfort you? Avail yourself to the work of the Spirit who will bring to light the glory of the gospel in your heart again and bring to light the God of the gospel so you can rejoice in no in any circumstance. This is God's plan to comfort his children. Give you a spirit. Illuminate Christ to us. Receive the gospel over and over and over and over and over again until we are so enamored by the gospel that literally nothing can take our joy away. This church in Corinth, if you remember from the context of last week, it was a very robust city, a very robust culture. They loved worldly comfort. When they heard the word comfort, they probably had the wrong definition, much like we do here in America. My guess is that we often have the wrong definition of comfort, self-included. Such a hard thing. When God blesses with wealth, our view of true comfort begins to change. That's the risk. That's the risk of wealth. That's the risk of that kind of blessing is that the definition of comfort begins to change in the wrong direction. When we think of comfort, what do we tend to think of? Ease, trouble-free, smooth sailing. I just, if God is in this, it'll just be smooth. Really? Money in the bank. We just want life to be easy. You ever hear your, find yourself saying that? I know I do. Why can't life just be easy? Why does life have to be so hard all the time? Just want life to be easy. That's comfort. That's where, I, that's where I tend to try to find the source of, ah, if life were just smooth and easy, no troubles, then I could breathe. In John Piper's sermon titled, Don't Waste Your Life, he said this, quote, you just want people to like you. If people would just like you, you'd be satisfied. If you could just have a good job with a good wife, a couple of kids, a nice car, long weekends, a few good friends, fun retirement, quick and easy death, no hell. If you could just have that, then you'd be satisfied, whether God was in your life or not. That is a tragedy in the making. End quote. That's comfort for us, though, isn't it? Smooth life. A couple of kids, nice car, easy death, no hell. That's all we want. God has more in store for you than that. The problem isn't that we want too much. The problem is that we want too little. We are far too easily pleased with worldly things when the God of all comfort beckons us to come and worship and rejoice and find joy in him. We're messing around, as C.S. Lewis calls it, we're messing around with mud pies. 
messing around with mud pies when there's a holiday at the sea offered to us in Christ. The problem isn't that we want too much. We want too little. We are far too satisfied with tinkering with worldly things to find comfort in worldly things when the God of all creations has come and worshipped. Find comfort here. The nice, easy life, that's not real comfort. It is not how God defines comfort. And hear me when I say this. It is his wise, loving discipline to ensure that his children understand what true comfort is. Namely, fellowship with him. Fellowship with God Almighty, like real fellowship, community, communing with God. Saying that out loud sounds ridiculous, but we have it in Christ. And I know we say this all the time, and perhaps it's lost its, its meaning or impact, but God is our hope. God is our satisfaction. Nothing, nothing, nothing will ever satisfy us in this world. Nothing will bring us lasting comfort but God. I hope we haven't heard that so much that we've just grown callous to it. God is our comfort. He is our home base, and it is his love. It is his love and fatherly discipline that allows life sometimes to just strip away worldly comfort from us. He allows life and his fatherly discipline to be hard so that we can remember what real comfort is. That we may have a greater longing and a desire and a taste for that which is true. We taste so much false comfort that we just have changed our taste buds. Sometimes God allows us to remove those comforts and to make life hard so that we will get a taste for true comfort. We need to stop thinking, if I just had, if I just had the house I want, if I just had the car I want, if I just had the vacations that everyone else gets, if I just had the time, if I just had the ministry I wanted, if I just had a different spouse, a different job, a better church, hear me, and I know we say this a lot, but I feel like our hearts get so deaf to this because we hear it and then we leave and like almost nothing changes. None of it will bring you peace. None of it will bring you joy. Even if you got it, it wouldn't give you hope. None of it, none of it, none of it. It's all a lie. There is no true and lasting and eternal comfort in this world. It does not exist. Paul got it. And he chased true comfort for the rest of his life. Understanding this is vital. Because when suffering comes, when it comes, when worldly comfort fades, when trials come, when persecution comes, all that will remain is that which is true. It's all that we'll have. It's all we do have. 
Jesus is not all you need. He's all you have. Everything else is a mirage. And when the mirage fades, will you have Christ? Will you have true comfort when all else fades? Will you know and embrace true comfort today so that when suffering comes, you will have it in that moment? We will, we will get to verses 4 through 11 next time. Like I said, I want to finish with this. God may allow or even bring trials, discomfort, hardships, as a loving father disciplines his children, he may allow these things to happen in order to point us to the source of true comfort. To remember the mercy of God. To marvel at the gospel. To hope for eternal things because this world is not our home. He does this in order for us to gain perspective. That's what we need. We need a new perspective all the time. We need a perspective to see the mercy of God and the comfort of God and then to be proclaimers of it to others, especially those who are suffering in the body. This is how we comfort one another. Suffering, affliction, crushing weight is what it feels like sometimes. Like there's no escape, no light at the end of the tunnel, sickness that won't go away, Children that just will never obey. Jobs that are just overbearing. Marriages that are just hard and doesn't seem that they're ever going to get fixed. Troubles within the body. Money problems. You name it. Sometimes it just feels like it never is going to end. It feels crushing. But hear me, for the unbeliever, God uses those things to draw them to himself or harden their heart. But for the believer... For his child, it is always loving discipline. Always. It is never punishment. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also in him graciously give us all things? It is a gift for you. It is a gift for you. And ordained by God in your life to be a tool to take your eyes off of the world and onto Christ. To deepen your focus on Christ. To hone in your focus on the mercy of God found in Christ. To take our hearts off of whatever it is we feel like we're losing. To take our hearts off of the mirage of this world, whether it be money, career, achievement, family, and redirect our, the eyes of our heart or deepen our focus on the one who is true comfort for us. He's constantly using life to bring us back to home base. And you're going to fight him or you're going to submit That's what it means to walk in the Spirit. Submit to God in these moments to let him draw you to the one who is true comfort for you. I remember a season of my life. It was one of the hardest seasons of my life, maybe the hardest that I can remember. It was back in California, back before I met Ashley, where legitimately the only thing I looked forward to Every day was my Bible and my fellowship with the body. All I could think about because everything else was so hard. 
everything was so hard. I couldn't wait to just get into the word because it felt like it was all I had. It was the truth of God. There was constant affliction around me. There was legitimate persecution in my life. It was one of the hardest seasons. I did not feel the sentence of death, but I felt like I wanted it. I wanted out. I wanted to escape. I wanted God to just take the pain away. I couldn't fathom another day, another month, another year, but I, was, I totally understood that where I was at, it could be forever. It could have been forever. There was a legitimate reason to believe that this was going to be my life forever. And that was the hardest time. Literally, the only thing I looked forward to was my time with Jesus in my Bible. I was desperate for that time. I was desperate to be in fellowship with other believers. So I remember one morning I was reading my Bible. I would get up, I would wait, I would wake up in the in the morning and there was I just couldn't sleep until I got up and got to my Bible. So I'd get up, I read my Bible. I don't remember what passage I was reading, but I just broke off into prayer in the middle, in the midst of reading, and I remember just tears running down my face. And I remember I remember because it's dripping onto my Bible. And I was just pleading with God, asking, why? Why is this happening to me? Why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this in my life? Why? And it hit me. I heard him say, when was the last time you were ever this desperate for me? When was the last time you ever thought about me like this when times were easy? Some of the reason why we don't read our Bible or pray enough is we're just not desperate enough. We should be. We should be. I felt like in that moment as I was praying, I heard the Lord telling me, I am taking you through this season for however long I deem the need to be to create in you a desperation for me. And I promise you, I don't remember any other time before that or even since then where I have walked so closely with my King. I felt that I was suffering and I could remember, I would reflect on his suffering and I felt connected to him in our suffering. I felt like we were walking with each other. I remember going to church and being the only, feel like I'm the only person there, but Jesus was there next to me, putting his arm around me, comforting me, consoling me. I remember it because he was all I had. And I wouldn't have traded it for the world. I would never have traded the suffering that I went through in that season for the relationship that was bound, bounded to me in Christ in that moment. Every tough season since then, that season only served to remind me to rest in the goodness and that he's going to use this trial and suffering to draw me into closer fellowship with him, to drive me to home base. And that's what he did. And that's what he does in every hard season after that. He reminds me of that one season that I thought I would never leave. And he says, doing it again. We're just going to do this again. Because you need it the rest of your life, Matt. 
the rest of your life. You are so prone to love worldly comfort. I'm just going to take you through season after season after season to drive you to home base as often as I want to because I love you. I love you. My heart, the hard life is not God's thumb on you. It's his love for you. And is there anything better than being drawn into fellowship with Christ? Is there any season of life that you or hardship that you would trade for growing in Christ's likeness and drawing closer to him? Is there any season of life that you would trade for the God of all comfort? My God was my comfort in that season, and it wasn't because I believed he was going to take the suffering away. I firmly believed it was going to last forever. God was my comfort because I learned to find Christ in the suffering.